what we confess in Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 523 of the Book of Faith. Lord's Day 6, there we confess, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who is at the same time, who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel. God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through Jesus himself. The sermon was prepared by Reverend of the Free Reformed Church in Mount Gibbon in Western Australia. Following the sermon, we will sing in response from Hymn 23, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would it have been like to have lived in Jerusalem near God's temple in the time of the Old Testament? What would it have been like to see the lamb, the goat, and the bull taken in for sacrifice? What would, have, what would it have been like to see the knife raised, the animal killed, and the blood that flowed from the altar through special channels out of the temple and out of the city? What would it have been like to see the smoke and to smell the stench of burnt offerings? It would have been a graphic scene that displayed a graphic message. For every animal brought into the temple, every plaintive cry of a beast about to be slaughtered, every drop of blood poured out on the altar spoke of the sin of man, of our alienation from holy God and the need for someone to come to take that sin on himself, to take the curse upon himself, and so enable us to escape the punishment that would befall on us so that we might again be received into God's favor. What would it have been like to have lived in Jerusalem and seen all of that? The sacrifices were a graphic picture of the consequence of our sin. But they also spoke of the hope that sin would be forgiven. 
know the blood of bulls and goats could never truly take away sin, not even in the Old Testament. But the promise in those sacrifices was the promise of the gospel, that one would come who alone could take our sin upon himself and bear the curse for us. The gospel, the good news in those Old Testament sacrifices is that they pointed forward to the great exchange that God had planned for the salvation of his people. I preached to you the gospel as we have read it in Leviticus 16 and 2 Corinthians 5 and the church confesses it in the Lord's Day 6 under the following themes. The gospel reveals God's blueprint for the great exchange. In the first place, who could make this exchange? In the second place, what was involved in the exchange? The gospel reveals God's blueprint for the great exchange. So first we'll see who could make this exchange. The Heidelberg Catechism is split up into 52 Lord's Days to encourage us to study it throughout the year, one Lord's Day at a time. Although this is very helpful, we should be careful that when we study the Catechism, we don't read each Lord's Day in isolation from the rest. For there are lessons to be learned not just in the content, but also in the structure of the Catechism. Lord's Day 6 also is best understood in the context in which it is found. Lord's Day 6 is found near the beginning of the section called Our Deliverance. In Lord's Days 2 through 4, we learned about the extent of our sin and misery and were faced with the truth that our sinfulness is absolutely awful. Our sin is so great that not only are we all conceived and born in it, but it sticks to us. We cannot of ourselves even begin to do good, but rather are inclined to all evil. Through the fall into sin, our hearts became desperately corrupt, and don't we all know it? We also learned in Lord's Day 2 through 4 about the consequences of such sin. God is terribly displeased with both our original sin as well as our actual sin, and has vowed to punish this sin with the most severe judgment, that is, the everlasting punishment of body and soul. And with that, we get a sense of the feeling that Adam and Eve had just after they had eaten the fruit in the garden. They had disobeyed God. They had fallen from the hill. They knew they deserved to die. The best they could do was try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. But they knew that this would never do. There was no way out. Nowhere to turn. Sure, they would later try to deflect the blame. Adam and Eve, Eve the serpent. But it would not work. No wonder when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they trembled and hid. But our catechism moves on from Lord's Day 4 into Lord's Day 5 and asks the question we now need an answer to. How could we escape this punishment when we again receive the disclosure? Well, we know that fig leaves won't work. We also know that trying to put the blame on someone else fails as quickly today as it did in the Garden of Eden. And so the catechism tries to find another solution. And from there, Lord's Day 5 concludes that we cannot save ourselves, nor can a mere creature pay for us. And so there is only one kind of mediator and deliverer who can possibly help us, one who is a true and righteous man, and yet 
more powerful than all teachings. That is, one is used at the same time in God. Perhaps we could call Lord's Day 5 God's blueprint for the great escape. Now we come to Lord's Day 6. Lord's Day 6 continues with this line of questioning, asking why it is that the one to enable us to escape the punishment that we deserve must be a true and righteous man and at the same time a true God. Answer 16 gives two reasons why our deliverer needed deliverer needed to be a true man. In the first place, our God is a just and fair God. Whatever God says, he will do. God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, fell into sin, and therefore earned the death penalty. And since Adam was our representative head, we sinned in him. Adam's guilt came to rest on each one of us, his descendants. It was man, therefore, who placed himself under God's curse. Therefore, the same human nature that sinned should pay for sin. Anything else would simply be unjust. But more than that, anything else simply would not work. When we fell into sin, man's relationship with God was broken. It was not simply that sin alienated man from God, but sin also alienated God from us. Our sin has caused great offense to holy God. Our sin made him angry, filled him with wrath. Yes, it was a righteous wrath, a holy wrath, and a justified wrath. But it was a wrath that needed to be appeased and satisfied. The only way for God's wrath to be satisfied was for that wrath to be poured out on someone who was a true man in every respect, for him to carry the full burden of God's wrath and so deliver us from it. But the Catechism also lists another quality for the Deliverer and Deliverer we need. He must also be a righteous man a sinless man, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. That is a problem because, as we confess in Lord's Day 3, man's depraved nature came from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. And there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. In other words, every person who is a descendant of Adam and Eve is by that very fact unrighteous and a sinner. As the Apostle Paul exclaimed in Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so that means that if any of us thought of searching for a man to be a savior, or even perhaps offering his own services, we can give up before we even start. We could never hope to find a truly good and righteous man and present him to God as a possible savior. We could never find a way to escape the punishment that our sins deserve. But there is more. If we were to find someone to save us from the everlasting punishment of body and soul, that person must not only be a true man, but also true God. He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. A mere person simply could not do it. The burden of God's wrath against sin is impossible for a mere human being to carry on his shoulders. 
sin is a sin against the holiness of your God. Because every sin carries with it a heaviness of death, the full curse of God. That is a weight that is too great for any mere person to even begin to lift. No person could withstand the burden of God's wrath for the sin of one man, let alone the sin of the whole world. It says in Nahum 1 verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for the Lord God consumes fire. And so the kind of Savior that we need is one who is 100% man and at the same time 100% God, a mathematical impossibility, a Savior whom we could never find for ourselves to present to God. What man could not do, God has done. Who is that mediator who is at the same time a true God and a true and righteous man? Answer 18. Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God's blueprint for the greatest king. The one and only who is true God man at the same time, the one and only through whom we might have our sins forgiven and again be received as God's Savior. He is our wisdom. He is the one who shows us the way to the Father. He is the one who redeems us from the foolishness of the world and turns to living God. He is our righteousness. He alone was perfectly obedient to God, and by his innocent and perfect holiness, covered in the sight of God our sin when he was conceived and born. He is our sanctification, our holiness. Instead of looking at us as sinners when we are in Christ, he sees not our sin, but the righteousness of Christ. We are a new creation. In Christ, God looks upon us not as unholy objects of his wrath, but holy children of his love. When he looks at us, he does not see our sin, but the righteousness of Christ. And indeed, in Christ, we are made new. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our Lord Jesus Christ is also our redemption. He has bought us back. He paid the price, the ransom for sin, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. And so in Jesus Christ, we have the answer. In Jesus Christ, we have the greatest king. In Jesus Christ, we have a mediator and deliverer who fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood set us free from all the power of the devil. That was God's plan from the very beginning. It is not as though God had tried other ways to redeem us in the past and then gave up his son as his last chance to save a people for himself. For all people in both the Old and New Testament, the only way to be saved is in Jesus Christ. 
chapter 19 of the Catechism teaches us that we know about the only Savior Jesus from the Holy Gospel in the whole Bible. Starting already when God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There were indeed stages in how God revealed the Gospel. It was first revealed in paradise where God promised to crush the head of the serpent. Then later proclaimed by the patriarchs, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by the prophets, and it was foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, before finally being fulfilled in the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the same in the Old Testament and the New, and Jesus Christ is the deliverer of the one who had to speak, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Indeed, Jesus himself said that the scriptures bore witness of him, John 5, verse 39. And after his resurrection from the dead, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed how the scriptures all pointed to his coming and his saving work. That is an important point to remember, for there are some who break the unity of the scriptures, who say that God works in different ways at different times, who say that the way to be saved today is different to the way to be saved in the past, in the times of the Old Testament. But there is and always was only one way of salvation, in the Old Testament as well as in the New. For both the people of the Old Testament and the people of the New, Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Before his birth, the people were called to look forward to the Savior's coming. And now we look back to the salvation he accomplished for us with his one sacrifice on the cross. All God's children from Adam and Eve to the end of time, only with Jesus Christ shall we can receive forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and eternal life. In the second place, we'll look at what was involved in this exchange. It must have been something to live in Jerusalem during the time that the Old Testament sacrifices were made. It must have been something to see those animals brought into the temple, the knife raised, the blood poured out, the animals burned, the smoke coming up to heaven. We read about this, we've read about this in Leviticus 16. That chapter describes the most important feast day on the Old Testament calendar, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest was to purify himself before coming to the Lord. Then, dressed in the holy clothes of the high priest, he was to offer a sin offering for himself before seeking to make atonement for the people. And then the high priest was to do a peculiar thing. He was to take two goats into the tabernacle. One goat was to be for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat, or as other translations say, for Azazel. The goat for the Lord was then to be killed, and the blood was to be washed in the most holy place of the tabernacle and sprinkled upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. This was a sign and a seal that God would forgive the sins of his people through the shedding of blood. It was also a promise that in his grace and mercy, the Lord would provide a way so that another blood might be poured out for our sins. The Lord would 
provide us with a substitute who would die in our place. But that was not the end. For then the high priest would take the other blood lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. He would then send the goat into the wilderness for the goat would bear on itself all the iniquities of the people and remove them from the community of Israel. Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. And it is in both of those goats that we see the judge that was involved in God's blueprint for the greatest city. Those two goats gain an understanding of just what it was that Christ did to make full payment for our sins. Not only did he suffer, not only was his blood poured out, not only did he die, but he also bore our curse too. He was sent out of the city, forsaken by all, and hung on a cross. And on that cross, every single one of our sins was placed upon him. He assumed responsibility for them all, and he carried them all. Sometimes we can be so flippant about our sins, and sometimes we can be so brazen in action and manner that it's displeasing to God. Sometimes we can be so easygoing in our hurried prayer of uh, forgive us our sins. But understand this, every single one of our sins carries with it a price tag. Every single one of our sins carries with it the price tag of death. Every single one of our sins needs to be paid for. No, God does not count our sins against us in the least. He has counted those sins against his son, Jesus Christ. Our sin is his sin. And when our sin was placed on our Savior, so was the curse. The wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race was poured out on the Son of God as he hung on that cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's fury through his grave. He was cursed for us. And that is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin, not just to carry our sin, but to be sin for us. Jesus was not a sinner, but he became the sin bearer. In becoming the sin bearer, he received the full curse that was to fall on us. That is God's blueprint for the greatest city. The righteous one, the sinless one, took our sin and unrighteousness upon himself. He became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just pure gospel and good news? As it says in that well-loved hymn, And when I think that God his Son not spared, sent him to die as scarce as they could be, on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. But there is an urgent appeal in our lives. Next week the catechism will go on to ask another question. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? To which we will read the answer, no, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all 
Reformed theologian Arthur Sproul once said, If you are not covered by the righteousness of Christ, you draw every breath as a curse from God. But Arthur Sproul was right. A fearful fate can fall into the hands of a holy God. And that is why the Apostle Paul is so urgent in his call to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 and 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Then verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For we are all sinners, and we all deserve the penalty of death. The gospel I'm going to preach to you today is that we have a Savior. It is in Jesus Christ that we have the greatest privilege. He took our sins. He bore our curse. He carried our shame. Christ accepted the curse that should belong to us so that we can take hold of the blessing that would otherwise only belong to him. And now 